I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hillary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins. And this is Climate Positive. When you make an SEO strategy, you start by calculating how much am I actually emitting? And then you start by thinking about methods, how you can address those emissions. But at some point, you end up at what we call unavoidable or hard to evade emissions. You cannot reduce anymore. And we help them to address part or the entire portion of that amount. At this point, the science is very clear. If we want to limit global warming to two degrees above pre-industrial levels, we must not only reduce existing emissions, we must also at some point become net negative, meaning that we are removing more carbon from the atmosphere than we're putting into it. So in this episode, I sit down with Climeworks CFO Andreas Apley to discuss the promise of direct air capture, or DAC, to provide a scalable, measurable, and permanent solution for carbon removal. In addition to discussing how DAC works, and both the DAC facilities Climeworks already has in operation, and the DAC hubs in the United States they are now developing, we delve into the viability of the business model for carbon removal, the need for supportive policy incentives, and the imperative to establish transparency and trust for a truly scalable and tradable carbon removal credit market. Andreas, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you. Great to be here. So first, I want to start with your background. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and then eventually studied. Yeah, happy to do that. So I grew up in, in eastern Switzerland, pretty much a bit in the countryside. Also went to school there. And we have a great business university in St. Gallen. That's where I went to. And then I joined a medium-sized Swiss multinational company called Bühler that manufactures machinery and plants in the food industry. And um, I joined that company. One of the reasons I joined them was one to work on um, actually another sustainable development goal. How do we feed 10 billion people in 2050? But I also joined the company because I wanted to work abroad. And I then spent over 10 years working in a lot of other countries outside of Switzerland. I also lived in a lot of countries in the Middle East, in Africa, and in Asia. Always tried to do some startups inside a corporate in those places and develop new geographies and new businesses. And eventually, um, I ended up creating a new business unit for sustainable proteins from insects that brought me closer to sustainability. And that business unit was made in collaboration with a scale-up. So we helped the scale-up to bring a technology from pilot to industrial scale. And there you can already see some of the connection to Climeworks. So eventually, two and a half years ago, I made my way to Climeworks because I always wanted to be on the front end of some of the biggest challenges that we have. And climate change, obviously, is one of those challenges. And yeah, I've been leading our finance team in Climeworks in the last two and a half years. I'm also responsible for fundraising on the equity side, on the project side, and new now also on the public finance side. So let's dive into Climeworks then. Climeworks is a developer of carbon removal technology that captures carbon from the air to often be stored underground, hopefully for thousands of years, or potentially also used as raw material for some other industrial process. So tell us first why we need to remove carbon from the atmosphere. Isn't simply replacing all of our greenhouse gas generating technologies today sufficient? No, it is not. So the climate science is very clear. If you want to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees or even 2 degrees above pre-industrial levels, the most urgent task is emission reduction, right? We, we say about a 90% emission reduction from the levels we have today by 2050. But the 90% already tells you that's not all, right? Unless we want to go back to the Stone Age, we will still need some technologies that emit CO2 and we cannot fully eliminate CO2 emissions. So you need 
active carbon removals from the atmosphere, basically for two reasons. Number one, to compensate for those emissions that we will still have in 2050 and that we will continue to emit. And secondly, to remove all of the historic emissions that we have made over the last 150 years, but also to compensate sort of for the ones that we will continue to emit on our path to net zero. So actually, we need to get to negative. And the only way to do that is through actively removing CO2 from the atmosphere. And just to give you a scale of this problem, so today we emit about 40 billion tons of CO2. So if you reduce that by 90%, hopefully we'll end up at sort of um, around 5 billion tons. And the IPCC actually predicts that we will need between 3 to 12 billion tons or gigatons of negative emissions. And direct air capture is one of the solutions that can provide them. And how much are we removing today? Just to talk about how big this market could grow. So the market estimates are roughly 10,000 tons. The plant behind me, which has hopefully gone into these estimates, um, Orca, um, that removes um, nominal capacity of about 4,000 tons um, every year. So it's very clear that we need to drastically scale this if we want to reach megatons or million ton levels by the end of this decade, and then billion ton levels by 2050. Yeah, we certainly have a long way to go. So let's talk about how we can get there. There are a few different technological approaches to carbon removal. There are nature-based solutions, of course, whether that's tree restoration or soil management. There are tech-enabled solutions like direct air capture or DAC, which we'll talk about today, or enhanced mineralization. And there are hybrid solutions as well that are more emerging bioenergy with carbon capture and ocean-based carbon removal. So why is Climework specifically focused on DAC? So I outlined we need to remove billions of tons of CO2 from the atmosphere. And that is if we reach our reduction targets. If we don't reach them, every billion that we keep emitting, that creates additional demand for carbon removals. Now, that also means that the solution will likely not be one solution, but we need to invest in a couple of different solutions. Now, all solutions come with advantages and with trade-offs. We have seen Traditionally, most widely used solution today is purely nature-based solutions, right? Because they are still available today at relatively affordable prices. But all of these come with limitations. And the same is true of hybrid solutions. And there's a couple of um, ways how we like to think about that. So number one is permanence, right? How permanently do you actually remove the CO2 from the atmosphere? And direct air capture has a big advantage because it's actually a truly permanent solution. So we take the CO2 from the atmosphere and then we mineralize it underground or we put it into permanent storage. And that means 10,000s of years of storage. So it's the most permanent solution available. Whereas other solutions, they are more challenged on the permanent spectrum. So they might only last for 30 years or 50 years. And it's also a question of how safe is that solution, right? We've all seen, especially this year, how quickly carbon that is bound in biomass, for example, trees can be released again if you have wildfires. So it's also about the safety of how sure can you be that this is really removed permanently. Then the other aspect that we look at is scalability. I think it's truly important that any solution that we propose has the potential to scale to the gigaton. And a lot of solutions that are out there in the market, they have a potential to get to millions of tons, but they are at some point limited. And that's true of a lot of these biomass-based and nature-based or hybrid solutions, that there is a limited amount of biomass that we can use to store CO2. There's a limited amount of land that we can use to plant new trees because we might also want to feed people and to house people. So there's simply not enough land and enough biomass available to remove 
those three to 12 billion tons that I have mentioned before. Direct air capture has a big advantage because it's in essence almost infinitely scalable. Yes, it will need capital. Yes, it will need steel and concrete, but it doesn't require a lot of land. It doesn't have big ecological impacts. It doesn't need a lot of water. And so it can be scaled really quickly. And what makes me optimistic about the potential to scale this is to scale by a factor of 1,000, which is what we want to do between 2030 and 2050. So from a million ton to the billion tons, or megaton to the gigaton, that actually has already been done before in renewable energies. So they have scaled in a similar time frame by a factor of 1,000. So it is possible to do it as long as you have a technical solution that is modular and that has this potential to scale. And then finally, it's about measurability. Now, the topic of measurability or MRV has been a huge topic, especially over the last couple of months when it comes to carbon removal solutions. There have been a lot of challenges, right? How measurable is this actually? And the advantage of something like direct air capture is that we can precisely measure the exact quantity. Basically, you have a flow meter on a pipe and you can measure exactly and in real time how much CO2 you remove. And so there's no doubt and no question about this is actually what the technology is performing, and it's not an estimate. So permanent scalability and measurability are the advantages of DAG, in your view. How does direct air capture actually work? You know, Walk us through the process and how your facilities operate. So our facilities are essentially modular in construction. So they consist of what we call a collector container, which is standard 40-foot shipping container size, which contains individual segments of what we call collectors. So you can see that's already inspired by the solar industry because of the modularity. And the collector on the inside, you have to imagine essentially a big metal box that is filled with a filter material called a sorbent that sits inside of these collectors. And on one end of the collector is an air inlet, and on the other end uh, is a big fan that pulls in a huge amount of air because of the low concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere. And as we pull the air through, our filter material is highly selective to CO2 molecules. So it forms a weak chemical bond with those CO2 molecules. And that process lasts roughly three hours. And after that time, the filter is saturated. And then uh, we move into phase two. And in phase two, we close the collector container. We heat up the contents of this metal box to about 100 degrees C. So that's a low-grade heat. That means it can be powered by renewable energy. And at that point, the weak chemical bonds are released and we can suck out the pure CO2. So we can collect CO2 in very high purity and high concentration, and then we can send it to permanent storage or to recycling in the case of reuse of CO2. And so how do you choose whether you go the permanent storage mineralization route or the industrial process route? And what sorts of industrial processes or recycling can this CO2 be used for? So when we built our first plant, um, our, our first large-scale plant in Switzerland in 2017 on the shores of Lake Zurich, we actually put that on top of a waste incineration facility because we could use the off heat from that facility to power our plant. And then because we couldn't do storage um, here in Switzerland, we actually reused the CO2 for soft drinks, right? CO2 in, in, in bubbly water. It's also CO2. And we also recycled the CO2 into greenhouses. I think there is a huge potential for this application also for other processes, for example, for making renewable fuels. Right? There's a couple of different industries that will be very hard to do without any fuels, for example, aviation. 
And so that's another potential um, use to use the carbon molecule from the air. So a truly recycled carbon molecule. But as I've outlined, the biggest problem that we have to solve is carbon removal, negative emissions. And that's why that's the key focus of the plants that we build today. That doesn't mean that we will not build also plants for the other application, but that's our focus at the moment. And so how do your facilities actually generate revenue? Obviously through some sort of carbon credits, but walk us through the revenue generation streams. So um, our facilities generate revenue by essentially two, two markets that we are addressing. One is for corporates and one is for individuals. So for corporates, we typically work with really blue chip large corporations that already have a credible net zero strategy. And when you make a net zero strategy, you start by calculating how much am I actually emitting? And then you start by thinking about methods, how you can address those emissions. But at some point you end up at what we call unavoidable or hard to evade emissions, right? Once you switched to renewable energy and you upgraded all your buildings and you told your people to fly less, at some point you will understand you cannot reduce anymore. And then you end up with, a, with an amount of unavoidable emissions and we help them to address part or the entire portion of that amount. And that means we, they contract us to remove a fixed amount of their emissions every year for a fixed price. And these are typically long duration contracts. And as we scale capacity, that, that can get bigger over time. So to eventually help them to get to net zero with fully measurable and fully permanent solutions. Right. And so then can corporates get credit with regard to their science-based or net zero targets through contracts with you and the carbon credits that you are generating? So um, definitely, um, in fact, the, the corporates, they sign offtake agreements with us that go over multiple years and that have the target at a certain net zero target that they define, whether that's 2025, 2030, 2040, or further along. And for the corporate buyers, I think they realize, especially the ones who have been in this industry for a longer time, that the market is actually supply constrained. If all the corporates that have made net zero commitments, they will all need carbon removal solutions. And if they all want to buy, then the market is extremely constrained. And that doesn't matter whether we talk about back or nature-based or hybrid solutions. And so they want to secure supply today. With regards to certification, so we work with a lot of these standard issuing bodies to develop new standards on what counts as a carbon removal and what are the requirements that you have to fulfill to count for this carbon removal. Since this is still a relatively small market in its infancy, but we all know it will get big and also the standard setters know it will get big. So we are working together on, on establishing a clear standard on how these get counted against their goals. Excellent. We'll go to that standard in a minute, but you also mentioned individuals can buy credits by contracting with you all. How does that work? Yes. So actually that was our first model when we started to move away from recycling the CO2 and actually going into removals is that we allowed individuals uh, on our website, we made them an offering to work on a subscription model. And basically individuals can subscribe for a fixed amount every month and then remove a part of their footprint. Obviously, we always want people to also try and reduce their carbon footprint. We, we let them calculate their carbon footprint and then what they cannot reduce, they can remove or they can remove part of it through our service every month. And we actually have uh, by now over 20,000 people who have signed up for one of these forms of carbon removal. And we're very grateful that uh, not just big corporates, but also individuals believe in the solution and invest in it. Excellent. So how much do these credits cost in dollar per ton basis? So today... This is still a quite expensive technology. It will get 
quite a bit cheaper as we scale. So as the technology improves, as we realize economies of scale, and as hopefully there will also be policy initiatives for people to do that. So today we talk in the high three digit dollar amounts per ton, but we expect that this technology can significantly reduce in cost as we scale. Climate Positive is produced by Hassi, a leading climate investment firm that actively partners with clients to deploy real assets that facilitate the energy transition. To learn more, please visit Hassi.com. So the carbon credit market was first launched one and a half-ish decades ago, and it's often been plagued with questions regarding integrity. You mentioned a few things earlier about quantifying and measuring actual removals, about the permanence of removals, about additionality. You know, are these removals actually additional relative to a baseline scenario? So how can we rebuild trust in the carbon markets? Because I think there's still a trust issue in many circles. And how can folks be sure that the credits that are being generated and purchased are quantifiable or measurable, permanent and additional? Yeah, great question. So you are right. There have, there have been a lot of challenges, especially this year. Um, I mean, we've also seen a lot of articles here. And we, from the beginning, we always wanted to set the standard for the highest integrity in the market. So we are very rigorous in terms of what we measure and how we measure. And that means also taking into account for example, the gray emissions of a solution, right? And that's one of the facts of, of carbon removal or even carbon reduction, that any replacement method still has a carbon footprint. And if you want to be honest, then you should always be very rigorous about calculating that. So the plants that we build, they do also emit CO2 when we build the plants, when we operate the plants, and when we eventually decommission a plant. And we are calculating this, and we have also independent life cycle assessments that confirm that what we emit is actually around or less than 10% of what we capture. And that means if a customer buys a ton of carbon removal from us, we actually move slightly over 1.1 tons to account for these gray emissions. Those emissions, are they primarily from the power that you need to power the facilities, the generation, or are they from the, your processes themselves? So most of it is from two things. One is the build of the plant. So our plants use steel and concrete, like any plant. And unfortunately, those are not green. I know there's other companies who work on green steel and, and green concrete. And we hope they will be successful because that will help us reduce our gray emissions as well. And the second is energy. So even renewable energy, and that's what maybe a lot of people are not aware of, they also have a carbon footprint, right? The solar, wind, geothermal, like what we use in Iceland, they all have a carbon footprint. And then depending on the supply chain of that industry, that carbon footprint can be larger or smaller. And so you have to take that into account when you build your plants. There's a new organization called the Integrity Council for Voluntary Carbon Markets. They recently released core carbon principles, which they hope will serve as a benchmark for the carbon credit brokers and marketplaces across the world so that there can be more confidence and trust in these credit markets, carbon credit markets. What are your thoughts on this organization? Is it, is it on the right track? So ICBCM is one of several initiatives in this space. And we're very glad that they're working on releasing guidances on the principles for carbon removal in the voluntary market. I mean, we always advocate 
for stringent accounting standards, because in the end, that also helps us, right? We want to strive for integrity because we believe in integrity in doing what we were doing. And I think it will help to create more transparency in the market on what are high quality and what are lower quality solutions. And that will also help the markets price these solutions accurately. And um, the key thing and the first thing is that the markets recognize that carbon removals are a separate category from emission reductions and avoidance. So emission reductions and avoidance credits, they are well-functioning market, they're a bit more established already. I think they're really necessary to drive reductions, but they won't help us to get to negative, to actual removals. And in terms of the removal space, as I said before, we support the creation of a lot of these uh, different removal technologies. I think all of them are necessary, but they have a clear quality difference. But as I spoke about durability, additionality, how do you quantify it? How scalable are these solutions? So how worthy are they of investment? And to actually make standards for this is really tricky. So I appreciate that the work there is quite tricky, but we do believe that it needs to be done. And we're very grateful that these organizations are working on these and they're making their criteria in a science-based manner. And that will really help to drive the markets and create more transparency. Well, I want to talk about a couple of your projects you alluded to earlier. The first commercial facility you built, Orca, which is located in Iceland. It's powered by 100% renewable energy geothermal power in that case. And it's been operational for about two years now. Can you tell us a little bit more about it and, and why did you site it in Iceland? So Iceland has actually been a, been a really great location for us. It, Orca is, as you said, it's the world's first and largest commercial scale duct plant. Essentially, when you place a duct plant, uh, you need two things. One thing you don't need, and I'm going to address that first, you don't need an emission source, right? Because we're capturing CO2 directly from the atmosphere. So you can really focus on the two other criteria to locate your plant in the best place possible. And those other two criteria are renewable energy, ideally at affordable price. So in the case of Iceland, uh, we're actually co-located with the world's second largest geothermal plant, and we use their heat as well as their electricity to power our plant, which has been really great for us. And um, the second thing that you need is permanent geological storage. And there we have a great partner in Iceland, um, they're called Cartfix, and they actually developed a method for the mineralization of the CO2 on the ground. So the CO2 actually gets mixed with water, the pure CO2 that comes from our plant, and then it gets pumped 300 to 500 meters underground. And um, at that point, the CO2 then mineralizes in a natural process over two years. And the third factor, sort of, I sorry, I only mentioned two, but there's a third one, and that is actually these two things being available already. Because if we have to, and, and in the long run, we're going to need to co-develop storage and renewable energy, but in the short run, we want to scale as quickly as possible to get to that million tons before the end of the decade. And that means you need renewable energy in place, you, you, you want to have storage in place, and you ideally want, already want to have the permits in place for both so that we can just scale as quickly as possible and we don't face any regulatory delays or risks to build our plants. And that's, by the way, also the reason why we are co-locating our next plant, um, which is called the Mammoth Plant. It's already under construction. It's about 10 times larger than Orca, and um, it will be actually on the, on the same location, and it's supposed to go online in early 2024. That's excellent. Well, in the U.S. here, we're also hoping to be a leader in direct air capture and storage and through various recent pieces of legislation, including the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill and I believe the Inflation Reduction Act as well. The DOE has recently announced $1.2 billion for a couple DAC hubs, one located in Texas, another in Louisiana. 
as well as nearly 20 other additional projects that hope to become future DAC hubs. And Climeworks is involved in at least three of these hubs, including the one in Louisiana. So tell us a little bit more about this initiative and hopefully it's a central role in growing the DAC market in the US. Absolutely, and we're obviously very excited to be selected for this funding, including um, one of the bigger portions of the funding. So the U.S. is a really important strategic market for Climeworks. We have a lot of clients in the U.S. And so we were very excited when a year ago or one and a half years ago, the U.S. has decided to take a clear leadership on direct air capture and carbon removals. And it's really a model for a lot of other countries to follow. There are really good policies to promote the growth of this industry. And there's obviously huge commercial potential and project development potential for us here. And there's, um, as you said, two initiatives. It's a regional backup program, which in essence is a CapEx funding program. So it, it reduces the cost for the developer to build these projects, which will help us build faster and at larger scale than we could by just getting the funding from the private side. And the second program is 45Q that was increased under the Inflation Reduction Act to $180 a ton if you remove and store the carbon permanently. And that obviously helps on the market side. I mean, we were very fortunate that our offering has convinced a lot of corporate clients to be early investors, even today when the price point is quite high. Obviously, that then also gives them the right to get more capacity at lower prices when they um, come in later. But I think uh, if we really want to accelerate the growth of this industry, it cannot just be corporate buyers that are off-takers here. There's two potential models here. One is something like 45Q, like a tax credit, that in essence, it acts like a feed-in tariff for renewable energy, right? It reduces the price premium for early buyers of a new technology. And that's obviously great. It's given the price levels I've, I've told you, it's part of the contribution. It doesn't bring us all the way there. So we still need a, a very large private demand. And another way to do this is um, government procurement program which, as I understand, is also being discussed. And actually, it, it's, it's been interesting since the U.S. has announced this. There were actually, we heard there's other policymakers which are starting to consider these type of initiatives. So it's really great that the U.S. took a leadership role here. And we're still early in the process, right? And a lot of governments are still figuring out how exactly to achieve those targets that they have set. And what we're excited about the possibility of working with governments and with project partners to show what carbon removal can actually look like in the U.S. and around the planet. I imagine one of the barriers to growth today is the cost of financing, right? You know, to actually build these facilities. And, and how do you bring down that cost of debt and equity at the project or asset level? I think part of the way you do that is through these long-term credits that have uh, certainty or government procurement contracts. But ultimately, you need agreements like power purchase agreements, multi-year. You mentioned some of the corporates that initially contracted you have contracted you on a multi-year basis. Right. But multi-year revenue contracts with credit-worthy counterparties is, I think, really how you can ultimately get the lower cost financing you need to build more of these facilities. So you talked a little bit about it earlier, but how do you really drive that demand at the private sector level? Great point. I mean, as I mentioned um, before, um, we really try to sign long-term agreements with our customers. And we were inspired a bit by power purchase agreements or by these agreements that spend multiple years because they essentially give you the certainty that there will be demand 
for the plant that drives down uh, your financing cost. These agreements can always vary in the amount of CO2 that is removed and the time frame. The market is quite dynamic, but we continue to push the duration of these agreements outward. And we're also continue to work with financing partners to bring down the cost of capital here. And that can be in the form of project equity or project debt. We're actually working with, for example, the Microsoft Climate Innovation Fund, which has been also a leader here in the space on partially refinancing our plans once they're proven out and once they're working. And I think these types of models will be really essential for the industry to keep growing. On the other hand, I think long-term supply agreements are also in the interest of the market at the moment, right? Because anyone who's really educated about the market understands that it will be really supply constraints. So they want to be able to secure their 2030 or 2035 or maybe even 2040 supply. And they want to make sure that they can actually fulfill their net zero targets that they've set themselves. And so it's also in their interest to sign longer-term agreements. Got it. And then finally, on the policy side, we talked a little about earlier whether that's tax credits or government procurement contracts. But are there any other important policy levers or mechanisms that you think would really help supercharge this market going forward, whether that's a carbon price or, or some other some other policy mechanism? My view here is you need the right mix of carrots and sticks. And we tend to say here in Europe, we're a bit better on the sticks. And in the US, a bit better on the carrots. Um, ideally, a good strategy for carbon neutrality has both. Now, what are potential ideas? I think CapEx grants, as we have seen them in the DACA program, are a good idea. And the challenge is you obviously need to select then the right projects. And that comes with a lot of due diligence and effort. I think something like 45Q is also a great idea because it's a bit project agnostic. But essentially, whoever does it and whoever proves that he does it gets that tax credit. So we really like the feed-in tariff type structures like that. Government procurement programs can also help to accelerate demand. I think one of the most important things and that often gets overlooked is what I mentioned before when we were talking about standards is the real distinction between removals and reductions. So when Jan and Christopher founders founded the company back in 2009, a lot of people said, well, you're a bit crazy because actually what we need to work on is reductions and removals come later. But the problem is if you don't scale them today, then they won't be available later. And I think that view has been adopted by science already seven, eight years ago, but I'm not sure if it has really come through in all the policymakers. And so I think the real next step is one for people to understand this, and we're working hard on, on helping it to educate people on this, but then also to put in some legislation in place and some standards in place that this can become a tradable market and not just a company to company agreement, but actually a lively market that takes into account the quality. So that's the other policy effort that I think can really help. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Andreas. We're almost done, but first we have the hot seat. So we ask for your immediate reactions to the following statements. One thing I changed my mind on is... How much small, focused, and capable teams can accomplish in a short time frame? When I need to recharge, I... Meditate, take a walk in the beautiful Swiss nature, or play video games. Excellent. The key ingredient to my productivity is? Writing a lot. Writing what I did, writing what I'm going to do, planning my day and my week ahead, and then focusing on the truly important things. Planning, reflection, and prioritization. That's what I'm hearing. I like that. <laughs> I want my kids to know. Don't have kids yet, but hopefully in the near future, 
I would want them to know that I wasn't only aware that we have an emergency and we have a problem, but also that I decided to do something about it. My favorite Swiss ski resort is... Lux. <laughs> so some folks in the U.S. believe Switzerland is clean and beautiful, but somewhat boring from a cultural dynamism perspective. Tell us why they're wrong. So uh, I actually used to agree with them. <laughs> I left Switzerland because I thought it's a bit too boring for me. And now that I've come back after spending more than 10 years abroad, I actually started to enjoy it. So number one, Switzerland and specifically Zurich, where we're based, it has become a much more interesting city over the last 10 to 15 years. A lot of great international companies here, amazing restaurants, great events. It has, has gotten a lot cooler despite the reputation. And secondly, actually, if you think about it, predictability is not necessarily a bad thing. So it allows your mind to focus on what really matters and uh, worry less about traffic and about and about other things. I mean, for example, I really enjoy public transportation since I came back to Switzerland, how on time it is and how I have less climate impact and I can actually use the time that I commute to work. So those are some of the good things about being boring. I love it. <laughs> and finally, to me, climate positive means... Focusing on a solution to the problem and not just a problem. Well, thank you very much, Andreas. This has been really fun and informative at the same time. I really wish you and Climeworks the best going forward and appreciate your time today. Thank you, Chad and Abby. It was really great. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please leave us a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. This really helps us reach more listeners. You can also let us know what you thought via Twitter at ClimatePosiPod or email us at ClimatePositive at Hassie.com. I'm Chad Reed. And this is Climate Positive.